Okay, today we are starting off and embarking on a new series that you just saw introed there. This is our series entitled DNA. Uh, it's a short series. Uh, it's, it'll be three weeks, and it's going through our purpose and vision statements. The first is, as David mentioned today, we are to and we seek to love Jesus to the point of transformation. The second part of our statement is to love one another to the point of sacrifice, and then love, to love our neighbor to the point of action. And as a church, we're going to be examining these three statements and looking into the DNA of Village Bible Church. As we've said before, we are one church that meets in three locations, soon to be four. Uh, that'll be launching on September 22nd. As we, uh, for those that haven't heard, we're launching Village Espanol uh, from here. And it'll be starting up on the 22nd, and it'll be about, I think it's at 12.30 p.m. So I'd really encourage you to be in prayer for that ministry. It's huge. We have about 42,000 people on the west side of Aurora. Aurora. 16,000 people come from Hispanic backgrounds. So we have a tremendous mission opportunity to reach out into the Hispanic community with a wonderful, life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what we can see is, is though we might be different in language, which is Village Espanol, and we might look a little bit different than the church, our campus in Shabana, we call our Indian Creek campus, or our campus in uh, Sugar Grove, there is something that transcends and unites us all together, and that's what we call our DNA. This is the essence of who we are, the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ and what we as a body are dedicated to. And that means loving Jesus to the point of transformation. And today we're going to look into that. What does it mean to love Jesus to the point of transformation? As I think of that and I think of the term transformation, I, I can't help but get a little bit intimidated because I have an image of my mind of someone who's godly and I think of myself far away from that mark. And the idea of becoming like that's a little bit intimidating to me. I don't know how it is to you, and I think I'm just so far away. And I'm reminded of, of uh, when I was on this, uh, last year I was at camp, and I mentioned to you that I had to walk across a log beam that was about 30 feet in the air. And I had no support whatsoever. I mean, I had a harness on in case I fell. And as I stared down, I couldn't but help be a little bit scared. From the bottom, it looks easy. When you're up there and you're looking down and the wind blows and people are yelling at you and you can feel the slick surface underneath your shoes, it's a different story. And that's when I kept saying to myself, I don't have to get all the way across right away. The first thing I need to do is take one step. One step at a time. And then another step. And then another step. And then another step. And I kept thinking of the next step. Now, each one of us, if you've been in Christ for a long time or a short time, aren't Jesus yet, and me, meaning that we don't look completely like Jesus, and we can all take the next step in our walk with Jesus. And that means each one of us loving Jesus to the point of transformation. So I'm going to challenge each one of us today. What is that, to keep in our mind, what is the next step that God has for us, the next step of faith, so that we look more like Jesus, and that we are further transformed to look like Him. Today we're going to look at, uh, into the life and workings of Zacchaeus. We're going to look at his life and how Jesus interacts with him, and we're going to get uh, a template, if you will, a launch pad of what transformation looks like and what God has for us in the next step of our walk with him. So today we're going to be looking at this, this Jewish chief tax collector, a short little guy. Those who have been in church for quite a long time, it's Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And we're going to be looking at him, examining his life, and see how God 
worked in him and through him to transform him to look more like Jesus. And through him and his example, we can see some of the steps that God might have for us to look more like Jesus. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask God's blessing on our message time. Father, we come before you knowing that we at times have unclear vision to see who you are, whether it's through sin or disobedience or transgression. Lord, I pray that you might wipe away the sin streaks that keep us from seeing who you are, that we might sweep away the dirt of disobedience, that we might truly behold who you are and what it is that you have done for us. Lord, if we need to make confession, may we do so. May we take out the trash of transgression and and through confession and give it to you, asking you to help us to see who you are, that we might be further conformed to your image, transformed into the image of your Son. Lord, please glorify yourself in us and through us for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's please keep your Bibles open if you have one. If you don't, try to just listen in. Uh, first of all, we need to jump in and get a little bit of background into Zacchaeus's life. So I'd like to really begin um, in verse 1. We see Jesus enter Jericho. Now remember, Jericho is the uh, famous Old Testament town where Joshua had led the Israelites when they were conquering the promised land to circle the city of Jericho, blow the, tra- the trumpets, remember that, and the wall came tumbling down. So it was a site of great miracle, a great miracle historically, and it was something that they had basically in the back of their minds. They were kind of a privileged town. This is where, where Joshua was, the story that had been told throughout Israel. I've been to the city of Jericho. It's one of the oldest cities in the entire world. A lot of palm trees. It is a little rocky, a little bit hilly. It can be unbelievably hot. Um, but it is a, one of the oldest towns, actually, in civilization. So Jesus enters Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now, we learn a lot about Zacchaeus and who he is. First of all, we see that he was a a Jewish tax collector, chief tax collector, in fact. Uh, Jesus says that he is a son of Abraham later on down in the text, which meant that he is Jewish. He is a descendant of Abraham. He is Jewish by ethnicity and by his nationality, and which meant that he is, uh, I mean, he, he identifies with the Jewish people. They identify with him. But there is a big problem that Zacchaeus has. He works for the occupying, hated, hated occupiers, the Roman government. And so he is working for them, and it's bad enough to be a tax collector. I mean, how many of us like paying taxes? Do you enjoy paying taxes? Is it one, I mean, when you sit down to do your taxes, is the first verse that comes into your mind, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. No, we don't think of that way. We don't like tax collectors. I mean, it's funny to me because there's even a VeggieTales episode where they slam, slam the door in a tax collector's face. I mean, it's no different. Even for children are being taught not to like tax collectors. Okay? It's true. And so it's bad enough to be a tax collector. It's even worse to be a tax collector working for the very government that you can't stand. These are the infidels, the pagans, the, the invaders, the hated Romans who had kept them from practicing their faith in a lot of different ways and, and ruling themselves and uh, running their own nation. They hated the Romans. So to have a Jewish man, tax collector, working for the Romans was vile, deplorable. They couldn't take it. And not only was he a tax collector, but he is a 
chief tax collector, which means he's in charge of other tax collectors, sending them off to get, get taxes to pay for this Roman government from his very own people. So he is absolutely can't stand the guy. Just everything about him, they hate. He reeks of compromise. He is a, um, a traitor to his nation, and they, they can't stand him. But Zacchaeus, we, we see him in verse 3, that he is seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was of small, he was small of stature in verse 3. Now, what we learn from this is that um, Jesus, by this time, had achieved rock star status. He had uh, he'd done all these different miracles. They had heard about him giving sight to the blind by helping the lame walk. I mean, even there was rumors that he helped the blind to see. And he even, even, there was rumors that he brought the dead back to life. And not only, I mean, you had the miracles, you had Jesus going toe-to-toe with the religious leaders of the day and just shutting them down in pretty amazing ways. And some of the times people didn't like the religious teachers. Some of them, not all, were greedy for gain and were putting unnecessary um, legalistic obligations upon the people that they hated. And to see Jesus put these guys in their place, playing their game, had to just cause inspiration. And not only that, but to hear him teach. I mean, could you imagine hearing Jesus preach? There would be this, I mean, there's certain times you hear someone speak and there's almost this magnetic electricity in the room. And for Jesus speaking, you could imagine just the comfort that many people would feel as if you were hearing the voice of someone that you hadn't seen in a long time. It's that type of comfort to your soul that brings peace to you. And so people were clamoring to see Jesus. They'd heard about him, and now they're going to see them for themselves. And maybe, just maybe, he might speak to them in their situation, in their life. So Zacchaeus... He wants to see Jesus, but he's a short guy. We don't know how short he was, but he's a shorty, okay? And he, he uh, was trying to break through the crowd. Now, you can picture this. The Jew, Jericho, as we said before, had walls, right? And the walls came tumbling down. But now, Zacchaeus, the short little chief tax collector, is trying to get through the crowd to see Jesus. Now, you can imagine what people do. So they start butting shoulders together. Oh, Zacchaeus is coming. They butt shoulders together, and he's trying to get around them the other way, and they lean the other way. They don't want him to get through, so he's trying to jump and see, and they're like, we're not letting this guy through. It's, it's interesting, if you think about it, that here is the place where the wall came tumbling down to get, so show God's freedom and peace and power, and now the walls are up, keeping this guy from seeing who Jesus is. But Zacchaeus would not be deterred. So what he does is, as we look in the story, He ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Now, what I want us to see is if we are to love Jesus to the point of transformation, which I believe we see in Zacchaeus, is that we have to get to a place that we can see him better, which means we have to look at life differently. Look at life differently. That's the first point that I want us to see today, that we cannot be deterred. People say this stuff about Jesus all the time and putting him down, but if we are truly going to be honest with ourselves, we have to see who Jesus is for us. We can't do what other people have done. We, we can't say that, oh, our parents did this, or our parents did that to keep us from seeing him, and use that as an excuse. We have to see Jesus for ourselves. It's like when Jesus was interacting with Peter 
And they, he asked them the question, asked, actually he asked all of his disciples, who do people say I am? And they gave all of these different options. Some say that you're Elijah the prophet, some say that you're John the Baptist. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, but who do you say I am? And he goes, you are the Christ. See, God comes to each one of us and presents himself to us and says to us, who do you say I am? And see, many of us, we do have to look at life differently. We can't keep looking at life through the lens of teachers, professors, grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles. We have to decide on who Jesus is ourselves. We have to come face to face with the Christ. And if we are genuinely seeking him, then God will show himself to us. Now, if we really are look at life differently, then we need three, to keep three things in mind. The first is this. It requires desire desire. Notice what Zacchaeus does when he is deterred. I mean, he sees the crowd. Does he just stop and go, eh, no big deal. It's not that important to me. He wouldn't be deterred. He had desire. Now, let me ask you the question. How much do you desire Jesus? How much do you desire God? Do you hunger for God? I fear that we have domesticated God that we have regulated God to the children's table of our lives. It's something for kids, not for adults. We put it, God, to the outskirts of uh, the family because we don't want him to interrupt our daily lives and what we're dealing with. But to see, if we have a genuine desire, we have to, that desire has to manifest itself in finding out. And that's what God says in his word in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. I want you to see this verse. You will seek me and you will find me. And this is God speaking to the nation of Israel after they had come out of bondage in, uh, or not bondage, excuse me, after they had been in exile in Babylon. And he comes out and he says, if you seek me, you will find me if you're seeking with your whole heart. So it means we have to lay down all of who we are to seek God and his presence in our lives. If you truly want to be transformed and not be the person you were and take your next step in following Jesus, it takes a genuine God hunger. Now I want to ask you, do you have that hunger? Do you have that desire to grow and look more like Jesus? To make a difference for the kingdom of God? To be transformed and to make his name known to the nations? And if you don't, I ask you, what's wrong? What is keeping you from seeing Jesus? What area of disobedience is in your life? What sin are you holding on to? What is holding you back? See, if we're to look at life differently, it not only requires desire, but it requires diligence. Diligence. See, Zacchaeus runs ahead. He sees that Jesus is about to pass by, so he sprints ahead. He is diligent. He is, he's not going to be deterred, as I said before. He has a desire, but that desire leads to diligence in that he's not going to wait around. He's not going to put off God. Many of us try to put off and placate God. We have a tendency to make deals with God. God, if you do this, I'll do this for you. You don't make deals with God. You can't placate God and try to give him just a few scraps of obedience while keeping away your life from him. He demands and wants all of your life. 
He wants to be Lord of every part of it. There's not one square inch of your life that he doesn't claim to be his. His death was so great and so amazing that we're to respond in wholehearted obedience. Just like that video said, the church is not just a building. It's a body, and it's a body on mission. And that mission is to transform and to trans, uh, be transfused into all phases and parts of our life. So it requires diligence. It also requires determination. See, not only was he diligent to run ahead, but he was determined, so determined, that he was willing to climb a sycamore tree. Now, we don't know how old he is. But we can assume that he's a little bit older because he's a chief tax collector. And, and they didn't have the Internet age where young guys would get put over older guys. But it required some measure of responsibility, of a pattern of doing the job well. So he was probably an older guy. So he is an older man who is running ahead and he's climbing a tree. Something very undistinguished or indistinguished for a man to be doing, of his age and his stature, and especially of his prosperity. But he was determined to see Jesus. Are you determined? Or are you dull? Are you dead spiritually? What does Jesus say to the church in the book of Revelation? Return to your first love. Are you in love with Jesus? Do you have a heart to make his name known? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he your passion, your purpose? So we have to have determination if we're going to truly be transformed and take our next step with Jesus. Now, if we're, we're not only to look at life differently, and that's what he had to do. He had to get to a place that he could see Jesus. But we also must be able to risk our reputation boldly. Risk our reputation boldly. I already laid that out for you. Zacchaeus would, was laying everything out. I mean, he was already made a mockery of for his occupation, what he did. But now, he's not only climbing to the tree so everyone could see him and be a laughing stock. I mean, he's putting his whole reputation on the line. Are you willing to rest, risk your reputation in your workplace? In your home? With your spouse, with your children, your grandchildren, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your neighbor? Are you willing to risk your reputation in the fear of rejection? I mean, many of us, that's what keeps us back, is it not? Fear? We're afraid of what other people will think of us. We're afraid of being, being labeled. But you know what? Jesus went through the same things. He was unjustly labeled. He was unjustly accused. And if you went through those things, so too must we. But as we're going to learn in our next series, we should consider it joy because Jesus went through the same thing. So we must make sure that we, if we truly want to be transformed, it requires us risking our reputation boldly. Now that requires us going to difficult places. Going to difficult places. He had to climb that tree. That's not an easy place to get to. And see, many of us, because of where we have gone in our disobedience, we're in a different place right now. And if we were to truly do what Jesus wants us to do, we're going to be in a very difficult place. For example, if you have been at your workplace and you've not been 
you've been uh, doing things illegally, and you decide now that I want to grow in my walk with Jesus, I want to be transformed, it's going to require you to step up and be a person of integrity now. And that's not going to be a fun place to be because your boss or their employees are going to come at you. That's a difficult place. Maybe you've sinned in another way. You've got yourself in a bad financial situation or maybe another living situation or what have you. You're in a difficult place because of choices that you have made. And it's going to cause you to go to a difficult place to get out of it. Where you're going to have to open yourself up to let God's shining light of his presence and his power speak into your life to remove it. So we have to go to these difficult places and allow God to perform the spiritual surgery. It's painful. I'm going to tell you right now, it's painful, but it's purifying. And we can't short-circuit that process. We can't escape it. We can't escape it at all. Now notice here what, what Zacchaeus does. We see Jesus, first of all, Jesus sees him in a tree in verse 5. Jesus came to the place He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. These are the religious teachers of the day. When they saw this, they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, what we can see that is that if we're going to be risking our reputation, it means that we're going to be helping those who are hurting and those who are painful circumstances. See, he's giving half of his goods. Think of that. Think of half your stuff you're going to give to the poor. Think of that right now. I mean, really. Can you imagine that? And if you do that, what are people going to say about you? You're nuts. That's risking your reputation. People are going to think you're crazy. And I'm sure they did with Zacchaeus. Jewish law didn't require him to do this. He's doing this of his own will as he is responding to God's uh, offer of salvation to him. And his life now is overflowing with joy and gratitude to God, so much so that he's willing to give half of what he has to help those in need. And it's, it's a risk to his reputation, helping those in painful circumstances. People are going to mock you for doing something like that. Now, notice what else he does. In the latter part of verse 8, he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, it means this. If you're going to risk your reputation, it, it also involves us riding past wrongs. Riding past wrongs. Now, August 27th, there was a, um, a headline in the news, I don't know if you saw it, about a man in um, a situation that happened in England. There was a, in 1971, there was a, a class at a church, uh, an English class, and a man who was German was there with his wife, and the class wasn't taught very well. So as compensation for going through such a poor course, he decided to take the church's Bible, 200-year-old antique Bible. He decided to steal a Bible. Thought it was funny. Okay? He goes back to Germany, and every time he sees that Bible, what happens? He feels convicted. For 42 years, this man has been under conviction for stealing a Bible that he finally couldn't handle it any longer, that he sends the Bible back to England with a a note of apology, basically asking for forgiveness. As he said, 
He said, I'm retired now. I've definitely decided to get on the right side of things. See, there's no shelf life on conviction. And there's something that we might have in our past that is keeping us back in our walk with God because we are afraid what others might think, what they might think of us. We're afraid what will happen to us, the consequences of our choices, and having such an admission. But see, that's what God wants. We have to go back and right past wrongs. And I can't tell you as a pastor how many times I have sat by an older person on their deathbed when they start confessing sins that they have held on to for 60 or 70 years that had been torturing them day in and day out. And they called themselves Christians, but they never cared enough or had the courage enough to admit what they had done. It happens. Now, one of the things that God does when we come to him, when we are honest in our confession and lay out our sins, he gives us a clean conscience in the sight of God, and he gives us the courage and the strength to bear up under the consequences for our actions. He gives us peace in a very powerful way. So let me ask you that question. What do you need to right? What wrong do you need to fix? What do you need to go back and restore? Something that you have done that you need to make right with another person. Is it a parent? Is it an ex-spouse? Maybe you're divorced. Something that you have done. Maybe it's something in your workplace with your employer. Maybe it's a classmate. Maybe it's a teacher. What is God calling you to go back and fix? To right that past wrong, just like a Zacchaeus did. What is keeping you back? And it, you will risk your reputation for doing so, but the peace that comes from God is so much greater when we are honest than any other persona and reputation that we are building that's on a far, false pretense, a false foundation. So we need to make sure that we are, rescu- are risking our reputation and righting those past wrongs. Now notice what else he does. And I, and I want, not only looking at Zacchaeus, by the way, I want us to look at Jesus' interaction with him. In verse 9, Jesus says to him, said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Adam, Abraham, excuse me, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now what you're seeing there is that you see Zacchaeus being transformed, and he didn't even realize how much he'd been transformed. He had experienced the salvation of God, and he starts giving back already before he even was being discipled, if you will. He was intuitively, by the Spirit of God, responding to God's grateful offer of salvation by giving himself, and and in essence, participating in God's action plan. Now, if we are truly to take that next step, it means adopting God's action plan as our own. Adopting God's action plan joyously. Now, see, many of us, we've taken these certain steps, but we have not yet gone to the point where we are are sharing Christ with other people and letting Christ permeate every action and part and parcel of our life. Some of us aren't serving. We're not doing what God has made us to be and do for the glory of his name. We are spiritual barnacles. Do you know what those are? Those are things that that attach to a boat that have no, no benefit whatsoever. They just hold on to the boat, hold it back. They just cling on. They don't offer anything. See, as a body, it's not about, the ministry is not about myself or the elders or it's about 
equipping you to do the work of the ministry. You are the church. We are in a church service, yes, but you are the body of Christ that is to go forth and make his plan and his, his heart to the nations known. See, that was the purpose of the nation of Israel. God chose them out of all nations to be a reflector of his greatness to the world. By shining in his presence, they were to, or being in his presence by showing the reality of their lives that they were children of God, and this is what it meant to be in a relationship with God. So if we're truly going to adopt God's action plan, it first of all requires having God's heart. Having God's heart. See, helping the poor, those who are far away, that's what we're to be doing. Helping the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the foreigner, for those that are the down and out, they're going through painful circumstances. We're to be the hands and feet of Jesus making his name known among the nations. So we have to have God's heart. Now, part of that heart is loving the lost. That's the next point, loving the lost. Now, that's what Jesus says. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, God steps into time to bring about the redemption of man. God so desires a relationship with sinful man so that he might be restored to fellowship with him. And we see Jesus seeking and saving the lost. He's crossing cultural boundaries. He's crossing social boundaries. We see that time and time again when he interacts with the Samaritan woman. This is a cultural boundary. It's a um, it's a gender boundary. It's also one of, of a teacher and a, and a sinful woman. He's even crossing a religious boundary. He's Jewish. He's a Samaritan because he seeks to save those who are lost. We see this imprinted on the pages of the Old Testament. That's what the book of Jonah is about. The book of Jonah is one big story of how far God is willing to bring people so far away back to himself. See, remember Jonah was called to go and reach this people, and and he ran away because he hated them so much. There was ethnic diversity. There had been political diversity. There had been war between the nations. Friends of his had been killed, I'm sure, by uh, Assyrians or the Ninevites. And yet God calls him to reach this nation, to go back and forth throughout the city, calling this nation to repent because they're going to be judged. God is going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And the people respond, and he is angry for it. He is angry because God cares for the lost and is saving them. He wanted them judged, not brought back to not brought to redemption. We see the same episode played out in Luke chapter 15, sometimes called the lost chapter on how much God cares for the lost. You have the parable of the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost sheep. And these are all stories that are examples and metaphors of God's compassion for people. And the prodigal son, we've all, many of us in this room have experienced that. Have been lost, have been off in our own sin. God has allowed us to go our own way, and we've come to our senses and come back to him. But what's amazing, and, and what's even more startling, is the older brother. See, many of us are more the older brother. When I was younger, and I was not following Jesus... I identified with the prodigal son. Now that I'm older and I've been in Christ for some time, I identify with the older brother. I'm ashamed to say that. The older brother, if you remember, 
after his brother came back to his senses, he had squandered all of his inheritance. He comes back. The older brother's like, what have you done for me? I have stayed true, and he's gone off and done this. What are you going to do for me? He could care less. He doesn't even refer to his brother by name in the, in the parable. He says, that son of yours. He doesn't even claim him as a brother any longer. Because he's so self-righteous that he couldn't see the mercy of God played out and understand that God delights. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, right? And what does Jesus, even in the parable of the lost sheep, he leaves the 99 behind to go get the one. Who leaves 99 sheep to go get one? A God who cares. A God who has compassion. A God who desires to seek and to save the lost. That's who. And even in Luke 15, when we see the parable of the prodigal son played out, we're left hanging, just like Jonah is left hanging. Both of those stories have cliffhangers at the end of them. And Jonah, God leaves him with saying, should you not care or should I not care about these people? And we are left wondering, does Jonah truly care? And in Luke 15, we wonder, is the the self-righteous son going to go in and, and fellowship with the brother who's been saved? And we're left wondering, does he go in, does he go out, does he not? See, God intentionally leaves us with that ambiguity and that tension to decide with ourselves, where are we? Do we care about the lost so much that we're willing to cross lines and not just surround ourselves with people that look and sound like us? That's the painful part. Because I guarantee what happens when you start reaching out to the lost something is going to happen. You're going to feel uncomfortable, number one, because they don't look and sound like you. They might have a different political view. They might have different religious views. And it's going to take time and process for them. I mean, they might be so far out, unbelievably awkward, who knows what. And what happens when we truly seek to go and save the lost, you know what happens? We're going to be criticized for compromise. That's the next point. That's what happens. You're going to be criticized for compromise. So Jesus goes and shows God's heartbeat for the nations by reaching out to the sinful chief tax collector. And what did the Pharisees say? Behold, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. See, if we truly have a heartbeat for the nations and for our community, other churches, other believers might accuse us of compromise. See, I've interacted with pastors in this community, and I've seen pastors get together from churches in this area, and they get together and talk about how some of these other churches that are reaching out to the lost, I've heard it from their own mouths, where they say, they've compromised the integrity of the gospel, we have stayed true to the word of God, that's why we are small, and that's why God brings in those who are, um, God brings those who we want. What? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You should, you're a spiritual hospital, brother. You're not a, a, a spa where everybody's all good just getting massaged. You're a triage. You're operating with people that are heartbroken, that are sin, that are messy. And that's what it was with Zacchaeus. And Jesus shows God's heart for the nations and leaves us with that verse. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those who were far away. And it made the religious elite uncomfortable. And we're going to feel a little bit of that too. We're going to feel a little bit of that, too. As we take our next step with Jesus, see, we have to blow away the walls of our cultural comfortability and embrace God's 
plan for the nations. And that's to seek and to save the lost. See, if we're to love Jesus for the point of transformation, that means taking that next step of faith. What is that step that God has for you? Because see, when we step out, that means talking to people that we wouldn't otherwise talk to. Building a relationship that we wouldn't otherwise build a relationship with. And putting ourselves in a situation where we have to completely rely on God as a body. And that means speaking to someone in your workplace that you've never talked to about Jesus. It might take some time. It might mean just inviting them to back to church Sunday. Whatever it might be, what is God, what step of obedience do you need to take? For some of us, those are small steps. For others of us, it's a giant leap. It's a giant leap. You know, I, I'm amazed that my, my, uh, my daughter started Washington Middle School, and I'm seeing some of her classmates we hadn't seen all summer. And what happens, inevitably, is they grow, right? Kids grow in the summer. And I always remember growing up, and I remember some friends that seemed to hit puberty right away. They had their growth spurt, and they're like eighth grade, and they look like, you know, they're running for Congress. They're so old. They've got five o'clock shadow. In eighth grade, you see those kids. And you see the kid graduating high school, and you're like, where's your mommy, son? Because he looks so young. He hasn't grown yet, right? But then what happens? In the next two, three years, he hits that growth spurt, and he matures, Now, some of us have been steadily growing in our relationship with Jesus, and others of us are about to hit a Holy Spirit growth spurt. And we need to grow significantly as we surrender our life to Him. For those that are continually growing, you need to keep growing. For those that have something holding them back, then surrender yourself, and you're going to find that God's going to grow you astronomically in a short amount of time as you surrender to Him and you remove that obstacle that is kept back that step of obedience that you have for him. See, one of the things I love about our church is this. In interacting with leaders over the years and getting to know the heartbeat of Village Bible Church and being involved with their churches, I can honestly say in some of the churches I've been in the past, when people would come through the door that did not yet know Jesus, for whatever reason, the people would expect them as if they had just completed a journey, not realizing that they just started it. So we, we have to remember that people, some people are just taking their first step. And yet we, fi- we f- hope that, you know, we hope that they're fully developed and they're not going to be messy. When we have children, they're messy. Right? I, I can honestly say that. I've learned so much about what messy is. I've even learned you know, there's new words for pain. Did you know this? There's the ow, there's that hurt, and then there's what I call Lego pain. When you step on a Lego... In the middle of the night, it's a whole other category. Kids are messy, and they're going to do things that are going to be painful. Same it is with making disciples. People aren't going to defeat their sins immediately. Some of us have been struggling with sins for decades, are we not? But God's grace is working in us, and we can see the process we've been through, and we must give them that same grace. See, the heartbeat of our church is to love Jesus to the point of transformation. And and each of us doing it ourselves, taking that next step of obedience with him, realizing we're all in process. We're all in process, but helping other people and all of us to grow in that process in our walk with Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I am truly blown away at your heartbeat for the nations. Lord, looking at Zacchaeus' life, seeing how he loved you, he desired to see you, he was so determined to get to you, and Lord, seeing how you received him, 
that you loved him. And seeing the transformation that was wrought in his heart, I pray, Lord, that that same transformation might, might be wrought in ours. And that each of us might have the courage and the boldness to put our reputation at risk, to take the next step of obedience that you have for us. Whether it is that small step, that baby step, or whether it's a giant leap, Lord, I pray that each one of us might grow in our walk with you and what it means to be a follower of you. For many of us, the light seems dim. Others, it seems bright. But Lord, I pray that you help bring the dimmer switch of your sanctification to bear on our hearts as we grow in our walk with you and discover what it means to be transformed into the image of your Son. As we put to death the misdeeds of our flesh, taking up our cross daily, learning to walk in this resurrection life that you have afforded us, to look more like you. Lord, I pray for us as a body that the DNA might permeate and we may not be a place. We might be a people on mission. Embracing your heart for the nations, for our community, for our workplaces, for our schools and for our homes. Lord, help us to be faithful. And Lord, as we we step out of our cars or off the bus or off our bike Monday morning, As we enter into our schools and our workplaces, Lord, help us to take that step. Help us not to care what others may think or be constrained by the fear of man. But may we be transformed by the wondrous love of God as the grace of God through the Holy Spirit of God is working in us. So, Lord, please use us, transform us, and glorify your name through us. In Jesus' name, amen.